Welcome to Working History, a production of the Southern Labor Studies Association. Become a member online at www.southernlaborstudies.org. I'm series host Beth English, and today I'm speaking with Joshua Hollins, PhD candidate at the Institute of the Americas at University College London and recipient of the 2017 Robert H. Zeger Prize in Southern Labor Studies, awarded by the Southern Labor Studies Association for his essay, There's a Bigot in Your Biscuit, Workplace Discrimination at Cracker Barrel, Civil Rights, and Corporate Activism in the Southern United States. Josh Hollins, welcome to Working History. Thank you, Beth. First of all, congratulations on the Zeger Prize. Oh, well, it's a great honor. Very uh, surprised to be honored with it, but it was very nice. Excellent. So your research, um, in part, which is what your essay for which you won the Zeger Prize was based on, explores historic workplace discrimination against gay, lesbian, bisexual, and transgender people in the U.S., South, and Southwest, and as well the social movements that emerged to counter this discrimination. Um, Your research on the service sector has focused on the restaurant chain Cracker Barrel. So I'm wondering if, to get us started, you could give us just a really quick history of Cracker Barrel, how it transformed from a literal country store in... Lebanon, Tennessee, to this national restaurant chain that's pretty ubiquitous on, you know, exits as you drive down the interstate in the United States. Sure, sure. Well, I mean, it was uh, Cracker Barrel was first established um, in 1969 by Dan Evans, uh, a former oil executive. Um, And he uh, saw the emergence of the highway system as an opportunity uh, to make even more money. And uh, he placed stores with an eatery, a gas station, and a gift shop near mainly interstate highways mm-hmm. uh, with the idea of tempting road trippers into refueling, both in terms of food and in terms of uh, to sell gas as well. Mm-hmm. Now, um, while McDonald's and others were already in the roadside market uh, with modern fast food restaurants, Cracker Barrel stores aimed to play to customers' nostalgia for simple southern cuisine. Um, Mm -hmm. Evans wanted family-friendly restaurants with decent food uh, that also sold a nostalgic view of the uh, Old South. Um, And obviously the store was a quick success. Evans abandoned gasoline at the height of the 1970s oil crisis in favour of uh, just having roadside restaurants um, selling grits and country ham. Uh, And by 1981, when the company is publicly traded, uh, they have a dozen or so stores, but all within the South. And, mm-hmm. you know, um, I'm sure most people listening and yourself would have been to a Cracker Barrel maybe. Uh, today it boasts hundreds of stores in most states. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so by the 1990s, then the chain has, as, as you've noted, some few hundred restaurants um, with sites on expanding at that point. But it also, in the 90s, becomes a flashpoint for LGBT workplace discrimination. Um, so if you could talk a little bit about um, why, you know, how this happened, essentially. What was the policy or policies enacted by Cracker Barrel that kicked this off, so to speak? Yeah, so in my research, I've been trying to uh, really get back to this because there has been some ambiguity to it. Mm-hmm. But um, really, I think it comes from a 1991, uh, January 1991 directive to the company's managers from one executive who called on the stores to fire those, and, and I quote, whose sexual preferences failed to demonstrate normal heterosexual values. 
Um, Dan Evans, who I mentioned before, the chairman, uh, still at this point, defended the policy by explaining that uh, gay people made customers in rural areas feel uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. Um, And within months, uh, so this is in early 1991, within months, uh, many as uh, 16 openly or suspected gay and lesbian employees uh, are fired. And after an initial backlash, uh, the company repeals the policy, but they claim that it was well-intentioned overreaction. Uh, you know, the policy was. Mm-hmm. Uh, so one newspaper columnist I remember reading uh, wrote um, that, you know, how could discrimination ever be well-intentioned? You know, the, the idea is kind of ridiculous. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And part of the problem became that even though they repealed it, individual managers in stores were still able to ignore the company's change of heart and in some cases continue to fire gay and lesbian employees. Um, You know, the company rescinded the policy, but it didn't implement a new one protecting their lesbian and gay workers. Mm -hmm, So mm -hmm. the battle would obviously continue over the decade. So what what was Cracker Barrel trying to achieve here? Um, You mentioned, you know, the, the policy was sort of built on this assumption that rural customers would feel uncomfortable, you know, for example. But, um, you know, did they see this as something that was fundamentally impacting their bottom line? Was it, um, you know, one of these policies that was couched in the, you know, the language of quote unquote values? What what were they trying to do here, essentially? Sure. I think it did come back to um, that values. And I think it was the, you know, this notion you're coming out of the Reagan era in the 80s, Bush is uh, still in power at this point. Um, and the company's looking uh, to push out and so, you know, and, and to expand into new regions, including the Midwest. Mm-hmm. And I think w- one part of this is that it's trying to shore up its image as a family friendly restaurant. Um, you know, that obviously in quotation marks. Right. Um, as, as it, prote- as it pre- uh, prepared to expand uh, further in the South and through the Midwest, uh, you know. To be fair, the chairman does suggest that, you know, the discrimination was the action of, you know, one overzealous executive who felt, um, you know, obviously legally unrestrained in attacking lesbian and gay employees in the first place. Mm -hmm. But um, from the viewpoint of the activists, it's quite interesting because uh, some of the research, some of the sources I look at are community gay uh, community newspapers from the era. And uh, there's a, you know, rumors were rife in the immediate aftermath of the firings that the policy was due actually to the company's fear of insuring workers uh, who were at risk of infection from HIV. Mm -hmm. Um, So, you know, speculation was that the hiring policy was related to a change in the company's medical insurance provider, which didn't want to insure lesbians and gay men due to the insurer's perceived association with, you know, that group and and AIDS. And Mm -hmm. so... Mm -hmm. I think there is something to that as well. You know, this, this claim really mirrored the experiences of other workers, especially those in the fast food industry uh, at this point, who did lose their jobs because they were suspected of having um, HIV and AIDS at this point. Mm-hmm. So can you talk um, a little bit about the firings that you write about? Do you have any examples that you could give us to give us a sense of um, who these people were, what their experiences were, what the aftermath was um, after they were fired? Yeah, absolutely. I'm, in my uh, piece at the moment, I'm using um, a handful of uh, of the experiences of, um, you know, just a handful of the workers who were fired. I'm still trying to find um, some of them. So, you know, if you're listening, please do get in touch. But mm-hmm. um, I think the most notable firing by the company was that of uh, Cheryl Somerville, who was a cook who had worked at uh, a Georgia uh, Cracker Barrel for about three and a half years. 
And uh, some of it would later go on to be the focus of the documentary Out at Work, which is well worth um, taking a look at. Um, it was released in 1996, I believe. But in Somerville's case, uh, employees were called to a meeting where several were fired after being read the policy. Uh, but she was away from the store at the time. And uh, she hears about it and she confronts her line manager the next day. And uh, she recounts that, you know, the manager actually knew she was a lesbian. So she demands, um, you know, I hear you have a new policy. If you do, I want you to read it to me. And um, I think her the, the response of her manager is quite damning because her manager uh, turns around and says, we're really targeting effeminate men on the floor. They're mm. wanting to them. Mm -hmm. So I think, you know, one can uh, gouge from her manager's response that, you know, as Somerville's work was in the kitchen, an area still strongly gendered as female, her presence at the store was not seen as a threat to uh, the societal norms, mm -hmm. you know, the heterosexual family values that the company is trying to shore up. Mm -hmm. uh, a white gay male waiter, on the other hand, who performs work, you know, historically racialized as black in the South uh, and, you know, further and gendered as female would uh, have been viewed as a threat uh, to those norms. And yet uh, Cheryl was still fired. Um, and actually, uh, with what would become an important part of evidence, um, on her notice of termination, her manager wrote, um, this employee is terminated due to a violation of company policy. The employee is gay. So, hmm. you know, it states in the clearest possible way that mm -hmm. the firing was due to her sexuality. And I think it was the New York Times who would write later on, you know, Cracker Barrel's actions stood out for its sheer blatancy. Mm -hmm. um, now, in contrast to Somerville, uh, Jeffrey Sherrill um, was a 28-year-old gay uh, white man who worked in the gift shop of a Cracker Barrel store in Charlotte, North Carolina. And uh, he worked there for about two and a half years. Um, and he seems, you know, he would appear to have been the embodiment of exactly who the policy uh, was targeting, as explained by Somerville's manager, um, you know, who they were trying to get rid of, an effeminate gay man. Um, so while company executives at the store, uh, sorry, while company executives um, nationwide would later try to paint those dismissed as being fired for other disciplinary reasons, not simply because they were uh, gay. Uh, Cheryl really put the lie to this. Um, mm -hmm. Shortly before he was fired, he received a 95% rating on his employee evaluation form and his boss wrote, you know, keep up the good work. Mm -hmm. um, yet two months later, the same manager writes on his dismissal form that he's in violation of company policy on homosexuals. So I think the openness of this discrimination and the fact that management stated their intention was to fire effeminate uh, men really lends um, evidence to a point made by many uh, scholars in the history of sexuality uh, that most those most vulnerable from homophobic discrimination in the workplace have been those most identifiably uh, gay or lesbian or bisexual or trans. Mm -hmm. And what sorts of legal protections were in place or weren't, as the case may be, for these employees, uh, these two examples that you give us and, and the many more that are out there, once they were fired or um, to protect them in the workplace in the first place to keep them from firing? Were there any any sorts of policies that they could turn to um, for recourse? Well, none, basically. Um and, you know, there, to this day, there remains no federal protections against uh, discrimination in employment um, based on a person's uh, sexual orientation. Now, mm. at the time, and, and this has become more common uh, recently, uh, some cities in the South did offer some protections, um, but these were often limited. So in the case of Chapel Hill, where Sharil is based, 
um, Chapel Hill was the only city in North Carolina to offer some protections for gays and lesbians, uh, but that policy was for municipal employees only. Mm, okay. So, what was the response um, beyond you know this this question of of policy recourse? What was the response on both the shop floor, if you will, um, in the kitchens, on the you know the restaurant floor, and in, sure. in, the, in the gift shops, and then second as well among activists more widely. So, what was happening in the restaurants, and what was happening sort of outside the restaurants to support or bolster this? Yeah, so um, activism in response uh, to the firings at Cracker Barrel really took off uh, initially in Atlanta. And in response to some of, uh, Cheryl Somerville's firing, uh, Queer Nation Atlanta organized pickets and boycotts of local stores. Now, the group had formed just months earlier in October 1990, um, and it involved many people who'd been politicized through uh, struggles around HIV and AIDS in the 1980s. Um, Somerville was quickly pushed to the forefront of that campaign and she became the co-chair of Queer Nation Atlanta alongside a, um, an activist called Lynn Coffran, who was a local activist in Atlanta, but was also working as Coretta Scott King's aide at the Martin Luther King Jr. Center for Nonviolent uh, Social Change there in Atlanta. And mm -hmm. um, it, I, you know, in my research, I think Coffran really uh, shapes uh, the strategies that would go forward um, for many of these groups. And he uh, posed the struggle as a mixture of gay civil rights activism and a battle for workers' rights. Mm -hmm. um, so activists first staged protests outside stores and held sip-ins rather than sit-ins, uh, which involved taking over a store, occupying every table, and ordering only inexpensive items, so just like one coffee. Mm -hmm. um, and these actions, you know, obviously aimed to to limit the amount of profit that the store could make by physically occupying the tables that would otherwise cater to paying customers. But they also sought to increase the visibility of uh, lesbian and gay communities in the store um, and throughout the South. So they would turn up, they would... Um, they might be wearing an overshirt, but take that off and it would have a Queer Nation uh, T-shirt. So it was very clear that, you know, LGBT people were using uh, the stores as well. Mm -hmm. And um, in mirroring the black freedom struggle of the 1960s, activists built a diverse coalition of lesbians, gay men and queer activists, but also alongside black groups, in, including the NAACP, uh, the National Organization for Women, Methodist churches, and uh, the Metropolitan Community Church. Um, and although uh, obviously um, somewhat weakened in the South, unions, uh, including the United Food and Commercial Workers, supported picketing the company headquarters, and uh, a letter of solidarity was signed by more than 35 trade union officials. Mm -hmm. um, in, you know, in solidarity with the Cracker Barrel workers. And uh, there was certainly common cause, I would suggest, for uh, African-American activists to become involved in the struggle against Cracker Barrel. Um, the store sold, you know, still continued, even uh, throughout the 1990s, it sold racist uh, Mammy and Sambo dolls and Confederate flags. Um, and in the course of legal battles around the protest later on, um, a Georgia regional manager for the company had to admit that they had no people of color employed in positions uh, above the store level. Mm. Um, and so, you know, this coalition really uh, starts to come uh, to the fore. Um, but at the same time, um, you know, you were asking about the shop floor. I think, you know, it's it important uh, that, you know, this, this did become a real galvanizing force for activism in the South on LGBT issues. But the response was mixed from workers in the restaurants. Mm -hmm. And, uh, 
found, um, you know, just as an example, uh, one protest in Lithonia, uh, Georgia, um, two workers were quoted in the local press. And I think they highlight the contradictory ways in which the activism affected staff. So one uh, worker who was a, <clears throat> a woman, uh, who identified, uh, didn't identify as uh, lesbian or gay. But, you know, she says that uh, she supports uh, what they're doing. It's not right that they're getting fired. And a lot of people are scared about their jobs. Then on the other hand, you have uh, an openly gay waiter at the store who is still able to work there. You know, he wasn't fired. Mm -hmm. um, and he expresses concern over their tactics. And he says, you know, I think what you're doing is awful for, for those of us working for the company who are gay. You're going to get us fired. Mm -hmm. um, so you have this, um, you know, uh, disconnect there. And so for some openly gay workers, um, like the, the gentleman I just uh, quoted, uh, you know, obviously feared for their jobs and preferred not to rock the boat. And yet that person appears, in my research at least, to have been an anomaly. Um, as there are no accounts of other openly gay workers who retained their jobs. I think it's likely that the Cracker Barrel policy um, actually, you know, had its intended impact at the mm -hmm. time, mm -hmm. encouraged their gay and lesbian workers to hide their sexualities. Um, throughout the South, Queer Nation and other lesbian and gay activists, um, you know, uh, sorry, other lesbian and gay uh, groups, activist groups, began to emerge in locations where really you had no LGBT movement um, before. Mm -hmm. um, and that's really thanks to the Cracker Barrel. So as the chain starts to open more restaurants, um, straight away activists are, are on top of it. And uh, so in Charleston, for, for instance, uh, a store was open for just seven days and it was targeted by a recently founded chapter of Queer Nation in that city. Um, now in uh, moving on slightly, in, in June 91, uh, word reached the group that in Mobile, Alabama, three more Cracker Barrel employees were fired solely for being gay. So, as I said before, although the company reversed its national policy after initial protests in January, clearly some managers continued uh, that policy on a local level, and, and that um, gave even more um, reason to fight back against it. And uh, you know, the activists began to look out further as well. And they said, you know, if the, if the Cracker Barrel policy stands without challenge, then other companies are going to have carte blanche to practice the same kind of bigotry. And uh, Lynn Coffram predicted that, uh, you know, he really wanted to push out. And he said, you know, when, when we help Cracker Barrel get the proper employment policy on the books, uh, they're going to be looking around at other southeastern companies and evaluating their policies. Mm -hmm. uh, it's more mm -hmm. than one company, but it's a, this they saw as a precedent setting struggle. Right. So in terms of gauging success, how would you assess that? Successful, not successful, mm. mixed? Um, what was the ultimate impact of this activism on the company, do you, th do you think? It, it's interesting because, uh, you know, as Cracker Barrel expanded its reach across the U.S., as I said before, demonstrators um, and the boycotts in protest of its homophobic you know, employment policy uh, continued. Um, and in you know, some cities with a long history of trade unionism, like Detroit, because at this point, uh, Cracker Barrel is seeing the Midwest and is seeing uh, Michigan as an, as an opportunity to expand out. Mm -hmm. uh, in places like Detroit, where you had a long history of trade unionism, uh, activists could call upon stronger union structures, which would quickly replicate uh, the success of uh, the civil rights coalition that emerged in Atlanta and elsewhere. Mm -hmm. And uh, elsewhere nationally, 
The human rights campaign uses the firings at Cracker Barrel to galvanize support behind the effort in Congress at this time to pass an amendment to the Civil Rights Acts of 1964 and 1968, which would have prohibited uh, discrimination on the basis of sexual orientation. And um, the bill was introduced by uh, the New York representative, Ted Vise. Vise uh, cites the Cracker Barrel policy as one of the main reasons why the law is needed. Mm-hmm. Um, and a, a spokesman for the Gay and Lesbian Task Force noted that the Cracker Barrel is actually, and I believe this is uh, still the case, uh, it might not be, I might come across some other example in my research, uh, so I have an open mind, but um, this spokesman notes that uh, it's unusual, Cracker Barrel is actually the only business that has ever had a written policy against homosexuals and lesbians. Hmm. Um, and uh, he says, you know, usually companies would disguise the termination as something else, as, mm-hmm. as we saw with uh, Cheryl. But um so this bill was, uh, you know, I argue, especially pertinent in the South, uh, where unions have been historically weakened, and uh, you know, labour laws uh, offer only limited protection for workers. Um, for instance, one of the other reasons why Cheryl could be fired so easily is because in the Carolinas, labour laws, um, you know, uh, workers are at will, employed mm-hmm. at will. So workers, you know, who don't have an employment contract for a specific length of time, um, can be fired at will as well. Um, and yet the, the bill was never passed and successive efforts for similar national legislation have failed to this day. So although the boycotts of the demonstrations pulled together an impressive coalition in many cities uh, throughout the South, Cracker Barrel's profits continue to grow in this point and uh, the company continued its expansions into new regions. Um, and this was at a time when other chains across the country were struggling to even report a profit, let alone expand outwards. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and it, it really showed no sign of uh, slowing its aggressive um, expansionist point. Now, in the face of this, and as queer nation uh, groups fragmented and the reinstatement of the SACT workers became increasingly unlikely, Uh, Activists became uh, more focused on trying to um, more solely win protections within the Cracker Barrel store. Um, You know, their focus shifted from trying to get um, the employees their jobs back to trying to have something that they could, you know, walk away with as as being successful. And Mm -hmm. what they end up doing is uh, becoming shareholders and uh, having a much more corporatized, individualized form of um, activism in in an attempt to influence future decision-making. And I think Mm -hmm. the story of a guy called Carl Owens um, is quite illustrative of this corporate activism. He was a queer nation Atlanta activist, and he first suggested the the tactic of buying shares in Cracker Barrel um, really as a way to involve gays and lesbians across the United States in the protest. So, you know, obviously in places like California, where you had a much more entrenched um, LGBT movement or gay and lesbian queer movement at this time, they didn't have Cracker Barrel stores at this point. So Mm -hmm. he wanted to involve them in it. Um, But uh, I argue in in my uh, chapter of my research that this um, move away from a grassroots activism to a shareholder activism really highlights the class stratification within lesbian and gay communities. Um, Mm -hmm. While those who were already shareholders and had some um, buy into that um, uh, type of activism would obviously be interested in what Owens was offering, he also called upon those who had never held shares before to get a broker. So uh, you know, it really becomes like a buy-in <laughs> mm-hmm. to the uh, to the company. So 
Um, but at the same time, there was some success in that. Owens's buy one campaign was uh, really strengthened when the New York City employees retirement system and a similar uh, pension fund, public pension fund in Pennsylvania entered the fight. Um, and, you know, these public pension pots had been partly invested in the cracker barrel chain. And so it was possible to exert shareholder pressure through these much larger bodies than Owens's um, buy one uh, gay and lesbian activists. And uh, in the early 1990s, the uh, New York public, uh, the, you know, the New York public uh, pension uh, employees retirement system pension fund uh, was the largest fifth, sorry, fifth largest pension system in the country. And they uh, actually held 80,000 shares in Cracker Barrel. Mm. Now, rather than support gays and lesbians out of principle, uh, the motions that they put forward to the uh, shareholders uh, meetings uh, really argued that discrimination was bad for profit. And so, you know, to quote some of it, uh, they say, you know, we believe that employment discrimination on the basis of sexual orientation deprives the corporation of the, of the services of productive employees, leading to less efficient corporate op uh, operations, which can have a negative impact on shareholder value. Simply mm. put, bias is bad for business. And so, you know, at the same time, it's kind of like they're not, they're, they're saying that bias is bad for business, but there's no, there's no longer, a, you know, a, a push to, it's almost as though the individuals who were at the heart of being attacked here are almost get, being forgotten about in mm -hmm. some way mm -hmm. as these uh, larger systems come involved in it. And uh, the imposition of New York and Philadelphia allowed Southerners, you know, who, who were at the, uh, owned and had, you know, shares in the Cracker Barrel business, uh, to claim that they were being um, bullied by northern liberal elites, um, you know, corporate bullying. Now, Cracker Barrel still doesn't suffer a fall in profit. Um, and in fact, its share prices go up. And I think partly that is because of the attention that Owens gets on, uh, you know, you have to go buy a share and people start to buy shares. And so the, you know, goes up, uh, the, the price of it goes up a little bit. And mm -hmm. uh, the company continued its rapid expansion into the Midwest. And, uh, you know, a marketing manager uh, claims that they do that. They move from the South to the Midwest because people's traits, work ethic, values and morals are the same to be found in the Southeast. And so, um, you know, I argue that the uh, company's expansion into the Midwest is emblematic of the, uh, the rapid transformation of the United States in the second half of the 20th century, where really, you know, the southernization of politics, mm -hmm. culture and now food found root in the North um, as the Sun Belt became the, the nation's economic uh, powerhouse. So did the activism around Cracker Barrel tri trickle up into policy, uh, both in terms of corporate policy and broader legislation or public policy initiatives? Yeah, so um, while the fired workers were never uh, rehired, um, in 2002, a decade after the firings took place, uh, the company finally passed policy on sexual discrimination uh, when Carl Owens and, and New York and their allies mustered 58% of the shareholders uh, to persuade uh, Cracker Barrel's board to vote unanimously uh, to, you know, explicitly forbid anti-gay discrimination in its equal equal employment uh, policy. Now, 
uh, there's a bit of a, some scholars such as John Howard have suggested that the shift, this shift has more to do with the company's growth than as a result of either street protest or shareholder activism. So, uh, you know, now with over 400 restaurants in 41 states, uh, Cracker Barrel operated in uh, jurisdictions where some protections for gays and lesbians in employment were recognized. So, it, you know, you, you obviously can't ha have, a, you know, as a homophobic, bigoted um, policy as they had in the early 90s at this point. Um, and so, you know, an expansion that had taken the company into areas um, less receptive to employment discrimination. Now, at the same time, uh, there's a very good book that uh, was released on uh, gay male flight attendants in the last couple of years, uh, Phil Tamayer's uh, Plain Queer. Um, he demonstrates how expanding uh, gay civil rights via the private sector as um, th these corporate activists were doing is really um, fraught with danger. And in his example, which is also in the 1990s, uh, Taimaya, uh notes that just as gay flight attendants uh, have attained parity with their straight peers, all of them have endured unprecedented pay cuts, the loss of collective bargaining power. And similarly, because these private protections are not anchored by laws or constitutional rights, they remain tenuous at best. And so, and I argue, and I adapt this for the fast food industry, where uh, workplace organisations are, you know, so weak and wages are so low. Um, now, in September 2004, only two years after the board was finally forced to accept um, and to add provisions to protect gays and lesbians against workplace discrimination, this so-called progressive turn, this friendly turn that the Cracker Barrel takes, um, was really proven to be uh, false. Um, Cracker Barrel was forced to pay um, $8.7 million uh, to settle allegations that they mistreated black customers and discriminated against black employees. And more than 40 plaintiffs in uh, 16 states alleged that black people were denied service, they were assigned to segregated seating, subjected to racial slurs and served food taken from the trash. Um, but also about a dozen employees complained that um, African-Americans were segregated away from white workers and generally received back of house uh, assignments such as cook, cook and dishwasher. Um, and so, you know, I think that really uh, shows that even while there was, you know, that there becomes this great focus around uh, gay and lesbian activism and discrimination uh, throughout the 1990s of the need to uh, link up those struggles and to really, um, you know, highlight how um, racism and homophobia and other forms of uh, bigotry and discrimination uh, really have a, a, you know, impact in, in certain ways and, and the need to fight back. And um, so while some victories were made, eventually, um, it took a number of avenues to get there. And, you know, it's still limited because of the lack of uh, statewide laws. What do you see as as having been at stake in this fight when, you know, we think of visibility for LGBT Southerners? If you think about Somerville and Cheryl's um, uh, stories, I think they unpack certain myths that have been held as truths about sexuality in the U.S. South. Um, so uh, scholar Donna Jo Smith uh, notes that the South has continually had a closet mapped onto it by scholars who prioritize notions of set identities and, you know, the, the, the coming out narrative. And mm -hmm. 
she states that you know the South has been conceptualized as a, a space of uniform hegemonic uh, oppression with minimal, if any, lesbian and gay visibility in community. And with my research, while the cracker barrel discrimination was certainly oppressive, I think the wider experience of um, some of the people that I write about actually challenges uh, the notion of an all oppressive South. So um, Cheryl Somerville, to take one example, in her story, she moves to the rural, to, uh, to a rural area from the city um, where, um, you know, her family life wasn't troubled by uh, prejudice. And it was, they said, her and her partner, Sandra, say that they, you know, basically accepted among neighbours who they holidayed with um, up until her firing. And that mm. was in, in, you know, in this rural area where there's this cracker barrel, right? Mm-hmm. So in contrast, I think uh, Cheryl's, um, Jeffrey Shirell's experience in a Cracker Barrel store that's located more centrally in metropolitan Charlotte, uh, where one might expect an openly gay man to receive somewhat more support than in the countryside, yet he was still fired for his effeminacy. Um, I think both of those firings, both of those stories really support arguments forwarded uh, by historian of uh, sexuality in the South, uh, John Howard, um, of a need to see rural and city spaces as dialectical rather than, you know, the city always being liberatory and the countryside as always being oppressive. And Mm -hmm. um, just one more thing on visibility, um, one of the biggest demonstrations staged by Queer Nation Atlanta um, was on Mother's Day. And uh, as I just said, some of and her partner, uh, Sandra, they mo- moved from the city to a town outside of Atlanta to raise a family. And Somerville's working at that store uh, with her sister and her sister-in-law at the same Cracker Barrel restaurant. Now, I think it's uh, really interesting that what they do is, you know, obviously what the company is doing is determining that uh, her family, that a, a lesbian or a gay family, uh, that, you know, that isn't traditional heterosexual values. Um, and so what the company does is uh, on Mother's Day hold a massive protest and uh, over 130 people attended, including uh, 20 mothers as a result of the organisers call to BYOM, Bring Your Own Mother. Mm, mm-hmm. um, and so, you know, although the dispute with Cracker Barrel was not resolved in the mid-1990s and uh, Queer Nation obviously folded and activists took on uh, other roles and other strategies, I think they could also take heart in a... Uh, you know, I found this um, 19, April 1995, the Georgia Equality Project uh, released a poll which showed that um, growing support among uh, Georgia voters for workplace protections for gays and lesbians. So 73% of registered voters in the state agreed that homosexuals should not should have uh, equal rights in terms of job opportunities. And that included 66% of those who identified as Republicans, 74% of independents, and 77% of uh, Democrats. And 82% of the respondents said that you know it was wrong to fire an employee just because he or she is thought to be homosexual. So, you know, to go back in terms of both visibility, but also, in, you know, how do we, um, you know, how is it possible to measure the success mm-hmm. of this activism? Mm-hmm. I think that, you know, I, th- I don't think those figures would be that way, uh, that positive, you know, in, in the mid 1990s, if it hadn't have been for the visibility that was brought out of uh, gays and lesbians in in the South, um, but also in you know this specific fight for workplace protections at Cracker Barrel, which represented so much in terms of southern visibility and uh, food. 
Okay, so um, can you very briefly just uh, talk a bit about how this specific work on Cracker Barrel fits into your wider research on workplace discrimination against LGBT people and, and the South more broadly? Sure. So <clears throat> at the moment, my thesis is uh, beginning uh, in 1970. Um, and I do that because, it's, you know, it's one year after the Stonewall riots in New York City. And so, you know, what we what became known as the birth of the gay liberation movement in the United States. But also it's the year in which migration out of the South reverses and more people start moving into the South rather than, uh, you know, the mass exodus as before. And so people begin to move back to the South and businesses and capital uh, floods in too. And so I look at how on the one hand, Sunbelt boosters and businesses uh, were trying to move away from the history of racial, racial discrimination to promote the South as new, modern and forward looking. Um, but these were also the spaces in which workplace discrimination against uh, lesbian, gay, bisexual and trans people uh, becomes really entrenched. And I focus on typical Sunbelt industries, so white collar jobs such as telecommunications and education, as well as work in uh, retirement communities, oil, the military, bars, and uh, finally fast foods. And I want to highlight how even in the Sunbelt, where right to work laws are you know, obviously a big part of working life, it was still possible to challenge homophobic workplace discrimination. Um, but also how this discrimination was first possible because of uh, the weakened unions and um, the, you know, the conservative movements that have come to uh, be seen as the main driving force behind um, Sunbelt development. And uh, the Cracker Barrel work is key because uh, it shows that, you know, how recently uh, companies have gone out of their way to discriminate against gays and lesbians and to do so so openly. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it really puts lie to this notion that, you know, things will always just progress, right? So liberals in government will take care of it and little activism is needed. And I think what this has shown is that um, even if it takes a decade or so, it can, uh, it, you know, it will still have an impact. Mm-hmm. Before we wrap up, fast forwarding to today, what do you see the Cracker Barrel stories relevance for current LGBT workplace activism? As I said earlier, um, you know, there is still no workplace, uh, sorry, no federal protection to prevent workplace discrimination against LGBT people. Um, A majority of states, uh, 31 in fact, uh, do not prohibit discrimination based on sexual orientation. And a number of those uh, states are based in the South, Southwest uh, Sunbelt. Um, over the last couple of years, we've seen new battlegrounds emerge. Uh, for instance, you know the, the spate of bathroom bills, mm-hmm. uh, which um, you know came out in the, over the last couple of years, and um, especially the one in North Carolina. And I think North Carolina is really um, key to this because uh, you know controversy rightly surrounded uh, that. I think it was called the Public Facilities Privacy and Security Act, uh, and. Um, you know, the, the controversy was for limiting transgender people's access uh, to public restrooms. And obviously, I think that's absolutely uh, right, right to have a controversy around that and to challenge it. However, other sections of the bill um, were often overlooked. And, you know, they included the prevention of city and county governments from setting a minimum wage standard for private employers. 
uh, additionally, it limited um, how people can sue for discrimination in court. And so it was obviously a, um, an attack on African-American and Latino-Latino rights as well. Um, but most importantly, the law contained a provision allowing for remaining parts of the law to stand if others uh, were struck down in court. So now we're starting to see that bill uh, be picked apart a little bit after the, um, the 2016 uh, election mm-hmm. where the, the government, government changed. But really what... Um, I point to is that, you know, there's lessons here from Cracker Barrel that actually we need to fight on a number of different fronts that, Mm -hmm. um, you know, we we need to have anti-racism, anti-LGBT discrimination, activists aligned with, you know, really a return to the the coalition. Um, And uh, we began to see that fight for 15 in um, North Carolina put at the very forefront of its uh, campaign when HB2 was being released, when this bill was being um, put through and voted on, uh, you know, they, they prioritised LGBT rights and so they challenged racism and, uh, you know, obviously they called for a, um, uh, you know, a higher minimum wage, a living wage. And so I think, you know, that's really a standard from which we can uh, move forward is to say that, you know, as you're starting to see new forms of unionisation in the South, new forms of workers' organisations, um, LGBT rights should be part of that because we're still fighting for uh, workplace rights. And, uh, you know, interestingly, when Trump came to power, one of the first things he did was to take away, uh, was really to take away the very minimal protections that there were for uh, trans students and trans youth in schools. And Mm -hmm. I think that sets, um, you know, there's been rumours that he's going to attack, um, you know, have a much more open attack um, to take away uh, the, the other very minimal protections that there are for LGBT people more widely. And I think, you know, you're going to see that coming from the South, but you're going to see, um, I think, an opportunity to really challenge it um, in, in activism in the South uh, on, on those lines too. Okay, well, great. Josh Hollins, we'll be looking forward to when you wrap up your project and maybe you can come and talk with us uh, again when that happens. Um, so thank you uh, for joining us on this episode of Working History. Sure. Thank you very much, Beth. Thanks again to Joshua Hollins, PhD candidate at the Institute of the Americas at University College London and recipient of the 2017 Robert H. Zeger Prize in Southern Labor Studies. And thank you for listening to this episode of Working History, produced by the Southern Labor Studies Association. Become a member online at www.southernlaborstudies.org and follow Working History on Twitter at Working History. 